Welcome to the Entertainment Engine. Welcome to Season 2 of the Entertainment Engine Podcast. I'm Pete Moore. And I'm Bex Gregory. This podcast was created by our company, Seamless Entertainment. We're providing in-depth advice and information for creatives pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. It's a great passion of ours and we're looking forward to sharing our knowledge with you all. Each week, we'll be bringing our listeners some great entertainment facts and news mixed in with special guest interviews from seasoned professionals who share their insight and experience of the business. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on all streaming platforms so you never miss an episode. And what a bonus, it's totally free. And now it's time to introduce our next special guest on the show this week, David Halfen. David is a Los Angeles-based attorney experienced in representing record producers, recording artists and record and publishing companies with his specialised expertise in counselling major motion picture studios and television, film and video production companies. David was Senior Vice President of Paramount Pictures and headed their music business and legal affairs department for almost four years. David's Paramount Pictures projects include The Italian Job, School of Rock, Mean Girls, Lemony Snickets, a series of unfortunate events. David was also outside music counsel for the Weinstein Company for many years. David performed business and legal affairs services on award-winning and highly acclaimed films such as Lion, Gold, Southpaw, The Butler, The Iron Lady, Paddington, Scream 4 and Scary Movie 5 and Lawless, just to name a few. In the talent representation area, David Halfant has worked with well-known bands, individual entertainers and artists, including Jennifer Love Hewitt, whose Hollywood career spans almost 30 years achieving much of her success by starring in movies such as I Know What You Did Last Summer and Heartbreakers. And other clients over the years have included Johnny Carson, Slash, John Travolta, The Kinks, Phil Collins, just to name a few. Some of David's corporate clients over the years have included the following entertainment industry giants, The Walt Disney Company, Lucas Films, Sony Pictures Entertainment, NBC, Universal Television, The Little Film Company and Doug Weston's Troubadour. Here's the chat Pete had with David earlier this week. Welcome to the Entertainment Engine today. I have a really special guest all the way from Los Angeles, US Entertainment Attorney, Mr. David Halfen. David, how are you? Excellent. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I thought, as we was going through our list, and I know you've been extremely busy, but I thought, got to get David on to have a chat because um, <laughs> obviously we're, we're, we're getting into it. But I don't know, it's just, I think when I met you in LA and all the work that you've done, David, I just you just seem to have, pardon the expression, but you just seem to have this golden touch of Hollywood around you. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, I think like anyone, we have our successes and our failures, but if you don't have both, it doesn't keep you level-headed. No, I, I, I'd agree with that. I, I suppose that's quite a good point to start off with, is you never know what's in front of you. And people always think that the path is um, full of success, but you've got to take the knocks as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, to give you an example, a typical new film project could take anywhere from six to 12 years to get off the ground. That's an amazing commitment of time and energy. It doesn't happen overnight. No, no, and I think... Um, we were chatting with um, 
one of our guests oh, last year and um, film producer, and he was saying exactly the same thing. Some of the people that he represents on the on the writing side can take 10 to 15, 20 years to get the book to, to screen. And when you say that to most people, they think, really, it takes that long? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people think that the big home run at the end of the rainbow is, you know, getting this huge check and buying a house with it. And truthfully, the success is getting it sold. (laughs) (laughs) If you get it out in the marketplace and people see it, that's the home run. Anything else from that point forward is gravy. Exactly, exactly. I expect you could be a multi-millionaire probably, I don't know, 100 times over the amount of people that are coming to your office saying, I've got this great project and I'm going to be a millionaire overnight. (laughs) Exhausting. Do you still get them types of people walk in? Sure. You do? Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'll have somebody that'll call me up and go, oh, my God, I have the greatest pitch for a TV show or a movie, and then I listen, and I'm like, why is this different than anything else that's on TV? The elements that they think are different are so minuscule that you could just tell that they just don't even know, and they don't understand the business. Yeah, I think, um, I suppose, looking from the other side, from if I'm looking at it from a consumer perspective and I'm watching Netflix or Amazon or whatever it might be, I don't think there's any genre that's not been covered, David. Action, adventure, superhero, drama, horror. You, I don't know. Can You can't reinvent the wheel, really, can you? No, but I will say this. The, you know, renewed importance of streaming has really catapulted um, television programming and also... There's been some amazing documentaries that might not have seen the light of day, but for the pandemic and streaming becoming so prevalent now in entertainment programming. So, you know, you got to look at the all the lemons on your desk and figure out how to make lemonade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I, I suppose something I was going to ask you later on, but I think it's quite Im- sort of relevant now, really. Do you... Um, obviously the state the way the world is and the way that what's actually happened do you think the the film companies have been forced into actually going onto the streaming platforms now because people really just want the content um absolutely and i think it will ultimately change the direction of the industry um you know uh, like for example paramount plus just launched and you know at the beginning of the pandemic nbc launched their streaming services everybody realized they needed to be in that space and you know in the past a lot of the networks avoided it because they couldn't make the same amount of money on advertising revenue so they didn't want to push people in that direction now they know they have no choice yeah yeah i I think so and i think even myself looking at uh, i've got amazon and netflix and one of the films that i I was slightly disappointed with it, but I still watched it anyway. It was Coming to America too. Uh-huh. Obviously loved the first one. I think Eddie Murphy's, you know, great what he's done. A little bit disappointed with it, but I suppose it just shares the point of people want more, more and more content and they want to see those movies. Maybe they won't go to the cinema so much now. Yes, absolutely. To me, I, I think the uh, one of my favourite movies of all time growing up was West Side Story. Yeah, even Spielberg is doing a remake, and I don't know how you top a movie like that. So it'll be very interesting. You can never, 
you know, underestimate the uh, genius of Steven Spielberg, but it's hard. It's going to be very hard to top the original. Yeah, I think. But I suppose, would you say if it's going to be any director, it would be Spielberg, to be honest? No question. And, you know, some people would say it's not about topping the original. It's about figuring out a new way to tell the story. Yeah. But, you know, when you have a iconic film of that nature, the same way, like, you know, the people that have tried to do remakes of The Wizard of Oz, yeah, it, it's always disappointing. So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what happens. <laughs> well, that, that sort of takes me on a little bit. It'd be great to know actually how you start in the business. And so tell us a little bit about your journey, where you grew up and where it all began. Sure. I um, actually grew up as a musician in New York came out to Los Angeles to go to law school and was lucky enough to get a job about six months out of school in the entertainment industry. And it's just been an amazing ride since then. I've gone from working in boutique entertainment firms to large you know, national firms to, you know, I was senior vice president of Paramount I was head of A&R in a record company. I ran a concert venue in Las Vegas for a few years. I've produced, you know, records and videos and executive produced movies and music supervised films. So I'm kind of all over the place. <laughs> but expertise in quite a lot of areas. And you're touching on um, working, well, obviously, vice president for Paramount Pictures. And I mean, some of the movies you worked on there, David, like The Italian Job, Mean Girls, even SpongeBob and SquarePants. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's... yeah. Great film. yeah. And to me, of that era, one of the ones that really kind of stands out is uh, School of Rock. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, you know made Jack Black a movie star. And early on in that process, there were people that were saying the idea of Jack Black being in a band with these kids in junior high school. It's so corny, it'll never work. And it was a brilliant film. Yeah, it was really, really good. Yeah. Really good film. And I think when you was in post at Paramount, David, did you ever say in um, what movies came on the sleigh or was it just purely no. from the legal perspective that you got involved with? I would be involved in the uh, production meetings every week, but I didn't make decisions about which projects to greenlight or not. My job was really more of being a service partner to the creatives. I was head of business and legal affairs for the music department. So once a film was greenlit, I would then be responsible for clearing and negotiating all the rights in connection with the music for the films that moved forward. Yeah, and I think that's a really great, interesting area for me. And I think one of the, the areas that I've seen over the last several years, Dave, and I think we had this conversation as well, with, why is it sometimes, I'd say every, but some producers think that just they leave the songs in the last minute and it's never in the budget or they never set aside the right amount of money but think they can clear a huge song and they never seem to sort of look at that properly. And I always find that quite frustrating. Have you come across that as well? Almost on every film. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you deal with it when someone comes to you? I'll give you a silly situation where you know you, you're doing the Italian Job Three, for example, and they want a Michael Jackson song, and they've got you know a thousand dollars. How do you how do you deal with that situation? It's very hard, but that's one of the reasons why I like to think that I'm good at what I do because I know 
where to find music that will be um, appropriate for the film, but at the same time affordable. But you're right, what happens oftentimes is the music budget is allocated in the beginning before you start principal photography. And then you start, the filmmakers will start going over budget in certain areas. And the first thing they do is pull uh, money out of the music budget because that's the last thing to get spent. And then by the time you get to doing the music, oftentimes it's less than what you thought you had to spend. But somehow, if you're creative, you always figure out a way to make it work. Yeah, no, I... You know, the interesting thing is I, I always found, you know, if the film performed well, it was because of the script. If the film performed poorly, it was because of the music. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because yes. normally the music drives the movie. I agree. But for a lot of people, the music is, it's a character in the film. But if you focus too much on that character, then you know it's not working. Where music is really effective in films is when it creates a texture and an emotion without getting in the way of the visual images. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think that's sort of well said, actually, because I think any, especially now with the way that streaming's opened up, where you can actually access a, you know, a, a really good show and you think, well, where did that music come from? What happened there? Right. Who was the music supervisor on that type of things that I would look for? Um, but also, would you sort of feel now and agree that it's a good way to break an artist now via a movie and a TV show with a great song? Do you think that's possible? Absolutely. I, I actually tell people that sync opportunities is really, in many respects, replacing radio hits. Yeah. Because it's harder and harder to get on playlists for people. And so oftentimes, if you, particularly if you're a new artist, having the opportunity to have your music showcased in a film that's successful could end up being the equivalent of a hit record for you. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that area is really exciting. I think the way music has changed, you know, over the years and the way that record companies have changed over the years and the way that we're seeing it, I think, I suppose, film is the new record company. Streaming is the new sort of, mm -hmm. you know, way to go. And you can find new music that you wouldn't normally find on, on, on a streaming platform. You know, you come across a new Netflix series that you haven't seen um, or something that's on Amazon and you think, oh, that was quite good. And I always look at the music, always look at, who's done yeah. what with what composers come on and yeah it just it just makes the um it makes the the movie but it's interesting what you say where the the actual project fails because of the music i sort of find that difficult to understand really it's normally the script or the actors isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but the filmmakers always need someone to blame if it's not a hit <laughs> That's not normally the lawyer, is it? It doesn't come knocking on your <laughs> no, door. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so who, um, when you're at somebody like Paramount, David, who are you ultimately responsible to? Is it the chairman of the board or, or do you have somebody above you at that point when you was working there? Oh, yeah, but I had a dotted line. I reported to the head of music on the creative side as well as head of business affairs uh, for the studio generally, and also head of legal. So I really had three bosses that I needed to make happy and report to. 
So how did you find, I suppose another point, interesting point, how do you find working from a massive corporate like, you know, Disney and Paramount to working for, you know, your own company? What's the big differences you found and what's the sort of pros and cons in that area? I think the big difference is that, you know, when you're working in your own company, you get to decide what the priorities are. And when you're working in a studio, you're told what your priorities are. And that's a very different mindset when you go into the office every day. Yeah, that can be quite um, challenging. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I would go into Paramount, I, I would, you know, walk on the lot and have this feeling of euphoric relief that there was so many amazing people that walked on this lot and I would pinch myself and say, I can't believe I work here. And by 11 o'clock in the morning, my heart was pounding out of my chest because there were a hundred people pulling at me for priorities and I had to figure out how to get it all done in an hour. So, <laughs> you know, it's the, the blessing and the curse. Yeah. Did you have, um, it's probably a big question, but did you have quite a lot of sort of paralegals and legal people working with you at, at that time that you could actually? Yeah. Yeah. There were about 12 people in the music department at, at Paramount at the time that I was there. I'm not sure if the staffing has gotten larger or smaller, but, uh, no. you know, we had clearance people, we had production people, and then we had, you know, uh, business affairs. Um, and everybody worked very closely together. We were all on the same floor. And so we, you know, uh, talked on a daily basis about various aspects of the pending productions. So let's say some of the projects you've worked on, for example, like Lion, um, Southport, Iron Lady, um, Scream 4. Would you also get involved in the merchandise and the toy side of it? Or was it just purely theatrical release as well, David? Would you, or would you get involved in everything? Um, I typically wouldn't get involved in the merchandising, although occasionally it came up like on Southpaw, um, there, uh, Eminem did the soundtrack album for the film. And as part of the exploitation of the film, Eminem wanted to sell boxing gloves uh, that were, you know, basically signed memorabilia for the film. And so I did get involved with that because it related to the music artist. But typically I wouldn't get involved. It, for me, it's more about, you know, if there are pre-records, you get involved much earlier in the process. If the music is being sunk into the film after production, then it's the clearance process afterwards. And then, you know, making the soundtrack albums, working on music videos to help support the release of the film, uh, things of that nature. But not that often that I would get involved on the merchandising side. No, just the reason I asked that, because obviously it's a big area, of, obviously, of a movie, you know, looking at what's happened over the years with some of the animation, you look at the merchandise and toys, you sometimes think that they would outweigh the movie at some point, as in, as in revenue, possibly. Well, I, it's funny that you should mention that. I remember, you know, early on in my career, I had the opportunity to work with uh, um, Lucas Films on Return of the Jedi. And I was uh, very intrigued by looking at the revenue streams for the merchandising side of the film as compared to the theatrical. And of course, the film was tremendously successful, but 
the merchandising revenue was equally as successful for the company. Yeah, no, that that is really interesting. And I think with today as well, David, do you think music, I mean, music still got a massive value, you know, valuable part to play in film. Do you think now that the soundtrack would still live on in a movie or do you think streaming is just it's where it's going to sit for the next foreseeable future? I think it depends on the project, you know. For the most part, soundtrack albums don't sell what they used to. And then you have the anomalies like Hamilton, which was driven to a large extent on the music for the for the Broadway play and then ultimately the, the movie. So it kind of depends on the project. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's interesting. Um, I like you say, project by project, you never know where it's going to go and what's going to happen. And I think, what's the best part of your job? And did you choose to be an attorney or did it actually choose you? How did that process come around? Well, I I started as a musician. And so for me, it was uh, survival. I was afraid that if I, you know, tried to be a professional musician, I would be a starving musician. (laughs) And uh, that was not very appealing to me. So I decided to go to law school and learn the business side of the industry. And, you know, it's worked out really well for me. I've been very lucky and I've had the opportunity to work on many great projects. So I feel like for me, it was the right decision. You know, some people find a very different path. Was you encouraged to go that way, David, with, with, with your parents and your family? Um, or, or was it something that you sort of made the decision yourself? Yeah, I, I, I would say growing up in a Jewish household, Yeah. I can only be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to choose between the three. And since I hate the sight of blood, <laughs> that, that limited the, the decision-making. <laughs> <laughs> so when you came home and said to your mum and dad, I'm going to be an entertainment lawyer, that obviously sat quite well at the time then. <laughs> yes, but before when I said, I'm going to be a rock star, they wanted to throw me out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> what music did... Um, did you did you perform? What sort of bands were you in early on? Uh, it's a little of everything, a lot of rock, a lot of folk, uh, some jazz. Um, when I was in college, I played in the jazz ensemble. It was a 26-piece uh, band with horns, and, you know, it, it was very exciting. But, you know, I've, I've played in about 40 or 50 bands, so I, I've tried to cover a lot of different styles of music, blues, um, you know, really anything that's fun to play. Do you still play today? Are you in any bands today? Do you sort of do any jamming sessions or anything? I, I do. And you know what? COVID's been nice for that reason because, you know, when I get bored, I'm, I'm just sitting here looking at my guitars and I'll pick up one of the guitars and play. So that's been nice. Yeah, no, that's nice. That's nice to have that to have that outlet to be able to do that. Yeah. And uh, also as well... I suppose a funny point for me because you you know been an attorney for such a long time when you're in front of a young band and you say that you actually perform do you find that they sort of resonate with you a bit more rather than just being in front of someone that's an attorney you get that bit more sort yes. of um respect from them really I, I I do think that's the case and I can think of a particular instance I was managing a young rock band and uh, I mean these kids were talented but you know a little inexperienced and I used to go to rehearsals and we were getting ready to record their first album and 
I was, you know, watching some of the um, techniques that the guitar player was using, and it was frustrating me because, from a, a musical standpoint, um, he was playing chords that were actually in the same um, um, range, uh, um, audio range as the keyboard. And so I said, do you mind if I show you something? And I took his guitar and I picked it up and I started playing inversions of the same chord much higher up the neck. So instead of the piano and the guitar conflicting with each other, they actually complemented each other. And his mouth almost dropped open and he looked at me and said, how did you know how to do that? <laughs> and so, you know, my answer was, I've been playing guitar a lot longer than managing or practicing law. And so it was a typical example of being able to help my client in a way that most other people couldn't because I was just, you know, more knowledgeable about the creative side of what they were doing. Did you get invited back to the rehearsals time and time again? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I remember one time I was... Uh, managing Jennifer Love Hewitt. And we were working on a record for the United Nations. I had made a deal with the UN to donate some of the proceeds from one of the singles off of her album for the Global Youth Forum. And I had hired a very famous producer to mix the track for me because I had put a big string section on the uh, record. And he said to me, you can come into the studio, but whatever you do, don't say a word because I don't like lawyers in my studio. <laughs> and so I, I agreed to keep my mouth shut. And about halfway into the session, I was bothered by um, a few things in the mix. And I kind of sheepishly put my hand up and said, you know, do you mind if I make a comment? And I actually mentioned something that I thought was uh, wrong with the way the uh, instrumentation had been set up. And shockingly, he looked at me and said, I can't believe it, I didn't hear that, but you're right. And then he looked at me and said, what else you got? And all of a sudden, <laughs> I was his friend instead of the enemy. And you know, truthfully, when I walked out of the studio at the end of the day, he put his arm around me and he said, I never thought I'd say this to a lawyer, but you actually have the ears and you can come back anytime you want. <laughs> That must have felt quite cool that you're in the cool gang now. Uh, I, I I love the fact that I could contribute on something other than just a financial or a business level. But I, but I also, I suppose as, as a two sort of spring attackers, I think, David, because when you've got both sides of the creative and the business side, surely that makes you being able to navigate the business better than most, probably? I think so. I think so. It just sort of gives you that more of an outlook. And I think, you know, you touched on Jennifer Love here, who's sort of, you know, almost 30 years of career spans in Hollywood with, you know, yep. start off like, I know what you did last summer to Heartbreakers, the client list. Um, how did that sort of relationship come around, David? Did, was it sort of like a chance meeting or was it just over time? She was living in Texas at the time. She grew up in Waco, Texas, and there was an agent at the Wilhelmina agency that was interested in representing her for, um, you know, modeling and acting, but they didn't know anything about the music industry. And she really wanted to be a singer, not an actress. 
And so they kept calling me and saying, come on, would you at least meet with her? Come on, come on. And, you know, I didn't really have much of an interest because I thought she was way too young. Yeah. And finally, I got a phone call one day from the agent and he said, hey, the family is willing to fly in to L.A. to meet you. Would you give them 15 minutes of your time? And so as a favor to the agent, I agreed to do it. And, you know, she came into my office and she was, you know, just had overwhelming charisma. She filled up the room when she walked in and she was she hadn't even turned 10 yet. And her mother looked at me and said, how would you like to hear Love play, uh, sing? And I said, well, yeah, set up a showcase and, you know, I'd be happy to come. And she goes, no, right now. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And they had a boom box with them and they put a cassette tape in the boom box and she actually sang live to the tracks in my office. And what started as a 15 minute meeting was a three hour meeting. And at the end of the meeting, I said, I have to work with you. And we ended up working together for eight years. Wow. Now, that sort of says to me where someone's come into the office and just actually owned the room and said, I'm here. This is what I'm going to do. And you couldn't say no, really. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was uh, it was one of those chance meetings. And I remember I went home that night and I said to my wife, I just found a female Michael Jackson. And she goes, come on. And sure enough, I mean, her career didn't start off in the way that we thought. She actually started making money initially um, doing uh, TV commercials. Okay. But, um, you know, it uh, it evolved into a recording career and movies, TV shows, and was really phenomenal. So that 15-minute meeting turned into nearly a decade of working with her. Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, that's great stories to hear, stuff like that, because also as well, David, when I've gone through or going through my life, and it's always the things that you plan that never quite work out, and something that you go, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do that. I'm not quite if it's going to work or what's going to happen. They're always the things that tend to sort of surprise you, really. And that's part of the fun of the business, is that you take on a lot of different projects, but you really never know which ones are going to fly out of the door and which ones are going to just be a time suck with no upside whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely, completely hear you on that one. And I think also as well, David, I mean, over the years, I mean, you've worked with people like Johnny Carson, Slash, Van Halen, John Travolta, Phil Collins, and obviously with your work with companies like Columbia Pictures, Walt Disney, NBC. I mean, this is probably quite... A difficult one for you to answer, but who's the best client or company you work for, and who's been the most difficult up to this point? <laughs> well, that is hard to say. Or an interesting but, client, should we say, an interesting person to work with? Well, I, you know, over the years, I, I've, you know, really had a lot of wonderful experiences with clients. I, I. You know, when I was 25 years old, I was afforded the opportunity to work with Johnny Carson. And, you know, having watched him on TV growing up, it was incredible to actually be doing work with him um, that early in my career. Um, At the time, I 
kind of thought of him as the godfather of television. And uh, he was a very interesting and unique individual. And, uh, individual. and you know, it's sad that he, when he retired from The Tonight Show, the initial plan was that he was going to do holiday specials like Bob Hope and, you know, act in a few films. And uh, it never really materialized in that way. I think he actually enjoyed not having the pressure of coming up with new material every week. And ultimately, he just kind of enjoyed uh, being in retirement. He ended up, you know, getting remarried late in life and had a beautiful home right on the beach in Malibu and, you know, spent the later years of his uh, life enjoying his time rather than you know, continuing to chase success. He had always said, I want to go out on top. I don't want to go out, you know, struggling to keep up my reputation. I'd rather leave when I'm at the top of my game. And that's really what he did. Well, I can't, can't really argue with that. And how did that relationship come about, David? Was it, again, a chance meeting or was it on the lot of Paramount? How did that sort of work out? No, my, my boss had been his manager and lawyer for many years. And so when I joined the firm, because he was a client of the firm, I was asked to work on some matters uh, with him and for him, but uh, it was definitely my boss's client. Wow. And um, would you say as well over the time you've worked in the, in the business, David, you've become more friends with people over time, that you just be, you just understand their life and what they're trying to achieve, more so than being an attorney? Uh, well, I do think that it's a very social business. So I think it's the combination of your business acumen coupled with a compatible personality that really makes for a long-term relationship with the client. Yeah, yeah. So this is an interesting point. Say you, you've, you've got two heads that you've worked at, say, Columbia Pictures, and you're representing Johnny Carson, and you go into Columbia. They've called you in to bring you know Johnny in. That might be quite a difficult situation to deal with, where you've you've representing you know the company, but you've also represented the client. That could be quite an interesting and difficult situation because you, you're being pulled personally as well. Yeah, I mean there are oftentimes conflicts, and you know the most important thing is to try and navigate as far away from the conflicts as possible. But you know early on when these kind of conflicts came up, uh, the firm that I was working at said to me, you know, if you don't have conflicts, you're not a player. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Kind of a catch-22, I guess. Yeah, I think... Um, do you think nice guys come last, David? Or do you, do you have to be that, have to have that mean streak as well, especially in Hollywood? I, I, I've always been of the mindset that you get more with honey than a baseball bat. Yeah. But not everybody believes that. <laughs> what is the one thing you wish you had known before you began your career as attorney? What's that one shining moment, or, or is there not? Yes, I had no idea how much work it was going to be. <laughs> um, you know, looking back in hindsight, I might have stuck with being a professional musician. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love what I do and I enjoy it very much, but it is very much of a 24-7 um, profession, much like being a doctor on call. 
I get I can get a phone call at one in the morning from a client saying, I was just thinking about something. And, you know, if you're not there to answer the call, they get frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. How do um, your clients come to you now, Dave? Is it just purely reputation or will you just take people on because you've known them for a while or someone comes out that you don't know? Would you be a little bit more dubious about it? How does your sort of process work there? Yeah, I mean, it's really all referrals and word of mouth. Yeah. I, I don't advertise. I don't do anything along those lines. The phone rings and there are opportunities that present themselves. And the toughest part about my job is trying to figure out, you know, I have a limited amount of time. And it's what am I going to put my time and energy into versus the things that I don't think will bear fruit? Yeah. Is that... um. Do you think you get better at that as as older as older we all get? Do you think that's a, a better call on that? Do you think, well, I'm not going to do that? It just purely comes down to experience. Well, you think you do, but it's kind of your ego getting in the way. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, even in the best of projects, you know, there's a hundred things that could go wrong along the way to sabotage the project. I worked on a movie a few years ago. I was music supervisor on the film. And we made a deal with uh, one of the studios and it was the independent division of the studio that we sold the film to. And of course, you know, 30 days after we made the deal, the president of that division left and it kind of threw the division into turmoil. And I think one of the reasons why the film didn't perform as well as it could have or should have was because of the internal changing of the guard. So sometimes there's things that are totally outside of your control that end up ultimately affecting the success of the project. But, uh, you know, you just, you do what you do and you, you know, pray that the sun, the moon and the stars aligns and everything, you know, goes in your favor, but doesn't always work that way. (laughs) And I suppose it sort of takes me back as some of the bands I've seen and, Categorically, I would say some of the festivals that I've attended or we've put on and managed to sort of sort of put together, it's always been that surprise of the unsigned or the new talent coming through that are always more, I don't know, always more hungry or they always just seem to do that more of a raw performance, really. Yeah. yeah like I said earlier, one of the most exciting things about the business is not knowing what's going to work and what isn't. And so you just kind of chase everything. I, uh, last uh, Christmas, I got pulled in at the very last minute to do some final work on the music for a film that had been sold to uh, Amazon Prime. And didn't really know much about the film, but was excited to help the filmmakers. And so I, I worked on the music rights and then the film premiered on Christmas Day, and here I was seeing the film for the first time, not knowing, you know, what the film, you know, what the quality of the film was going to be like. And much to my surprise, it was it was such a delightful film that I ended up watching it three times in the first week of release. Oh wow! <laughs> so those are fun things when you work on a project and you realize wow this is a really good movie well sometimes those things are the most sort of surprising and like you say you you just don't know and i have to say the quality of content on amazon and netflix is 
especially the TV stuff, is actually really, really good. Really good. Yeah, and this particular project was near and dear to my heart because I played a lot of jazz growing up. Yeah. And you don't get the opportunity that often to work on film or TV projects that have a serious bend towards jazz. And this film had all jazz music in it. It was about a jazz saxophone player. And so I think that also kind of sucked me into the movie so much so that I started going back and listening to some of my old Miles Davis records and John Coltrane records and Sonny Stitt. And, um, you know, it was fun to kind of revisit, you know, the 50s and 60s jazz music that, you know, I loved. And the film just reminded me about how uh, potent that music is if it's, you know, used in the right way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, is it still yeah. on Amazon now? Is it in the UK or worldwide yeah, release now? Yeah, the name of the movie is called Sylvie's Love. Okay. And it's really, really good. It's a classic love story and it has an old school Hollywood feel. I mean, it could have easily been Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You oh, know, wow. it, it wow. was it was one of those feel good movies that were clean and wholesome with a good message and great music. Uh, the uh, you know art design was beautiful. The cinematography was great. It's really a very well done film. And that sort of leads. And that's a really interesting point, David. Leads me on to with this sort of sprinkle dust that Hollywood provides. I sort of sometimes have a bit of an issue with so many famous people they just want to be famous and you think well hang on a minute why can't we just go back to the the golden era where it was sprinkle dust and you know not everyone could be famous i sort of think it's taken the bit like christmas where you wake up when you're little and you go to open up your presents and it's all fantastic and then you know it, i don't know it just sort of annoys me a little bit what are your thoughts on that well i use the analogy of the music industry because you have a let's say you have a film uh, or let's say you have a recording artist that releases a record and the record comes out and it's a hit. Um, and now all of a sudden, the, the artist has the pressure of trying to repeat that success with their follow-up. You have those artists that try and emulate their past successes and hits. And then you have the artists, and I'll use Miles Davis as an example, I mean, he was the antithesis of, you know, repeating the past. Part of the magic of Miles and the reason why people loved his music so much, the minute that he made a musical statement on one record, he would then come back and the next record would be a totally different approach to his music. And it was the constant changing of the direction of his music and his career that made him a true artist. And so, you know, you have to kind of find that ultimate balance between art and commerce. And it's sometimes hard because oftentimes, you know, the big corporations that are funding your career, they're chasing the commerce. And sometimes you can't have a successful career if you don't maintain your artistic integrity at the same time. So it's a hard balance to find. And, you know, filmmakers have that same challenge. Yeah, that um, reminds me of another conversation I had a few weeks ago and um, another guest that we had. And 
lives in Austria now and he's an artist and sort of set up a, a streaming platform. And he was saying it's the sort of same things. His, his dad was one of the first DJs on Radio Caroline in the North Sea um, when, when radio became, started to become big in the UK. And um, his band were going to be signing to a major label. And they said, we just want 10 songs like the first one you just done. And he would turn around and say, well, it, that's not art. I can't make 10 songs like that first one. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and we had a big conversation about that. So it's really interesting you bring that up because I just think it, it is a real struggle between art and commerce because, like you said, yeah. the, the big companies want profit um, and the artist wants to make great, you know, great art. And I'm seeing that yeah. at the moment with um, just the contemporary artists, you know, that have gone, the great painters, where their paintings are now worth, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But in the beginning, they were worth absolutely nothing. And you just think oh, it's just sometimes really sad and difficult how things sort of turn out, really. Yeah. That's true. Um, also, David, I see you had the privilege of sitting on the Board of Governors for the LA chapter for the Recording Academy for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now you're the chairman, which makes perfect sense, of the Guitar Centre yes. Foundation. Uh -huh. How did these two opportunities come about, really? How, how, how did they sort of materialise? Well, you know, getting involved in the Grammy Board was um, something, you know, I had been you know, working uh, for uh, many years in the industry and was a member of the Academy. And they kept inviting me to, you know, submit my name for consideration to the board. And truthfully, I never thought that I had time to do it. And so I kept passing on the opportunity. And ironically, when I finally did submit my name uh, for consideration, and I was lucky enough um, to uh, um, have the ability to get voted in on the first time I submitted my name. And it turned out to be the best experience that I ever had professionally in my career. I worked with some of the greatest songwriters, producers, record executives, um, and it was all about helping the Grammy brand and raising money for music cares and the Grammy Museum. And it was not only a wonderful opportunity, but the ability to work with, you know, legendary people in that room was something that I'll never forget or take, you know, for granted. And when the, um, you know, Guitar Center situation came up, I was actually on the board and the chairman of the board had retired um, and they were looking for a replacement. And there was another very famous executive in the business that they really wanted to be chairman of the board. And for one reason or another, I don't know if he just wasn't feeling it or didn't have time to commit. And so he passed and I was the default second choice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which which I was fine with, and I kind of didn't really know. I mean, do, do I have time to do this? Is this the right thing for me? And it turned out to be another wonderful, wonderful experience. And you know, I, you know, we do three things at the uh, Guitar Center Music Foundation. We give out um, grants in the form of musical instruments to school districts across the country who can't afford to buy instruments. 
And then we also raise money for music education and music therapy. And, you know, with, you know, funding for the arts having been cut so dramatically in school systems, I feel like we're really making a huge difference in people's lives. And, you know, that makes me feel good because at the end of the day, sometimes you do things for money and some things you do, th you, you, sometimes you do things for giving back to the community. And it has to have, have a balance of both in your life. Otherwise, you know, you're really not a well-rounded person. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that that type of work as well, I mean, probably completely different from the Grammys to the Guitar Foundation. And I think, how does the funding sort of work, Dave? Where does, is it private money that comes in or is it partly government support for the, for the instruments? How does that sort of work? Uh, well, the Guitar Center Corporation, the, um, you know, the for-profit division of the company, uh, gives us uh, some money in the form of donations, but you know, to a large extent, we have to come up with our own fundraising opportunities. We have a program right now called Roundup. So when people go into a guitar center store and they buy an instrument or you know sheet music or whatever it happens to be, the um, uh, cash register uh, operator will say. Would you like to round up the uh, purchase and, you know, give a little bit of money to the foundation? And so they end up doing that. And you'd be surprised how much money we raise just from, you know, good natured people just saying, oh, yeah, throw in another 10, 20 bucks for the foundation. And uh, that's a significant source of funding for our, our charity. Wow. Now, that, that is pretty cool. And yeah. with schools and how do they get in touch is there sort of like a, a process they have to go through like an application yeah. process yeah they, there's an application online uh and you submit the application then we have a screening committee that considers the grants and then we uh we have an executive director that once the decision is made he'll be responsible for implementing the you know selection of instruments and shipping them out to various people we, we posted a video online recently. We shipped out a truckload of instruments to a, a school. And I mean, they videotaped the, uh, the, the teachers and the students when the trucks arrived and people were crying. Really? Wow. And so we, we know we're making a difference in people's lives, which is very exciting. Well, and I also think what a great, you couldn't say great timing, but the way that what's happened in the world is giving young people an opportunity to, you know, find their creative spirit. And again, we might find the next big act come out of that, or you're just giving pleasure to kids being able to sort of learn an instrument, which I think is really cool. Well, I, w I will say that one of my earlier experiences that really motivated me to get involved in the Guitar Center Foundation um, my daughter was going to a school at the time and there was a, an autistic kid that went to school with her and because of his uh, special needs, he had a hard time um, socially. He couldn't look at you in the eyes. If you touched him, he'd pull away. You know, these are sometimes classic symptoms for autistic children. And his father um, was a judge, so we had a lot in common because of my 
you know, being a lawyer. And so throughout the process, his dad said to me one day, you know, I think my son has an acumen for playing drums because every morning at the kitchen table, he bangs on the table. So they got him a drum set. He started to learn how to play. And, you know, he was really good at it. And it changed his life. Overnight, he ended up coming out of his shell, becoming, you know, much more socially comfortable. Uh, he, he finally found like he'd found some purpose in his life and something that he could do as well as anyone else. And music changed his life. And so when I was asked to become the, the chairman of the foundation, I thought, you know what? I mean, that's one example that I know of, but God, if you could do that for thousands of people across the country, what a blessing that would be. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, I suppose it sort of sends a message of well, thinking, you know, when you get stuck in the trenches of working for a big corporate or really diff you're having a difficult experience in the record industry and something like that happens, you think, well, it, it's all worth it at yeah. the end of the day, you know, putting a smile on his face and it doesn't matter if he's going to be the next big rock star. It doesn't really matter as long as he's enjoying playing the drums. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, like when we work on movies and I've probably worked on over 300 films in my career, but you know, making a movie is not curing cancer. No. Uh, and so you, you have to keep it in perspective that yes, you know, films oftentimes have something important to say, and oftentimes can be commercially successful and rewarding at the same time. But again, you've got to have that balance in your life where you're also doing something that really uh, changes people's lives for the better. And, you know, uh, entertainment programming can do that. But to me, the, the charity work that I've done over the years is really what you know kind of warms my heart and makes me feel good about being in the industry because it's sometimes the things that I can get accomplished that other people can't that can help the charity. Like, you know, when we did our first annual fundraiser for the Guitar Center Music Foundation, um, it was my job to go out and get talent for the show. And by the time we finished, I had about 10 acts on the bill and every one of them agreed to perform for free. Then when we were interested in doing the silent auction, I reached out to all the movie studios and record companies in uh, LA and everybody contributed, um, you know, CDs and DVDs and posters. And then I went to, you know, Gibson and Fender and a few other manufacturers and I got them to donate guitars. And I couldn't have done that if it wasn't for my reputation and involvement in the industry. So I was able to use my connections and my experience over my 40-year career to benefit the charity. That's not really a, a small feat either. That's a really massive thing to do. Yeah, and it was a huge undertaking, and I almost collapsed my business because I ended up spending so much time on the event that I wasn't spending as much time as I could have or should have on my practice. But at the end of the day, you always figure out the balance that works. Well, I think I think so. And I th what have been the, the differences if you've been on the Grammy board? Give us an example there of a project that you worked with there. How different was it? And um, um, explain a little bit more about that. 
Well, we got involved in a lot of different things. It was anything from, you know, um, um, legislation. I would go to Washington every year to meet with uh, senators and congressmen to try and get uh, new bills passed to benefit uh, the music industry. And, you know, so um, that is a very important part of the activities that the Recording Academy does. But then at the same time, you have Music Cares, which raises millions of dollars every year for musicians that can't afford housing or can't afford uh, medical treatment. During the pandemic, Music Cares has donated millions of dollars to musicians that couldn't afford to pay their bills. Um, and so it's a, a, a wide spectrum of various things that are done, you know, sometimes for that have a direct benefit and sometimes have an indirect benefit, but, you know, always with the mindset of, you know, helping to change the uh, community at large for the better. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely hear that. And I think really great examples because if you can't eat and pay your rent, you can't continue on your creative career. Yes. Um, and also as well, David, entertainment brings in, you know, not just hundreds of millions, but billions of dollars a year to the community. Yeah. And especially with grassroots, I mean, we're seeing it at the moment with, you know, there's no country at the moment sort of away from this with COVID and what's happened with the live sector. Um, and I know people are chomping at the bit to see live, but it's just going to still be very difficult because at the moment, you know, we've got all musicians out of work and they're struggling and I want to see them all, all get back to what they do like everybody does. Yeah. When I hear big festivals that you know still want to put a festival on and put fifty thousand people in a field, I'm like, well, it's difficult to do that at the moment. Yeah, right, right now it is for sure. How how are you um, seeing some of the festivals in the US? Are they sort of cancelled for this year, or are some of them still wanting to move forward? Yeah, many of them have been cancelled. I mean, early on in the pandemic, they were um, you know doing concerts much like drive-in movies where people could stay in their car, but still, you know, experience seeing live music. But it's really not the same as being packed into a room where you feel the energy of the audience. And ultimately, we'll get more back into the normal routine. But I actually think it's not going to happen until, you know, close to the end of this year or beginning of next year, where we're really at full capacity and live venues and people are comfortable um, going back. But I think, you know, initially there'll be, you know, the doorman will have a thermometer. They'll be taking your temperature. They may ask you to show a card that says that you've been vaccinated or you've tested negative. I mean, who knows what safety precautions will be implemented, but, you know, over time we'll get back to normal. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but I do, one thing I do think is going to happen for sure is, when life does come back, people are going to be loving it. Oh, I yeah. think it's going to be even, even bigger, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that could be true for sure. And I think, and I think also as well, you know, looking at your experience working for big corporates, I think it's about the same with governments. I think governments and big corporates have got to listen to what the people are saying. And I think maybe the big studios are with actually you should put stuff on Amazon and and Netflix because right. people will pay for it if it means up up in the subscription by another few dollars people will pay to watch that latest movie they will do it yeah we know it's the jewel in the crown but 
like you said, you watched the movie three times. So when you're in your home, you might watch it once and think, oh, actually, I'll go and watch it again in a couple of days. So really, the studio's benefiting from that two or three, four, you know, um, streams of that movie from one person. Yeah, no question. So it's got to be a good thing, really. Yeah. Also as well, David, I wanted to ask you, are you still working with the Troubadour? Yes. And you're sort of branding and licensing agent for them? How's, how's that project going? Great. We're actually in the process of uh, selecting a director for the documentary right now, which has been very exciting. Oh, wow. And when, when do you... Um, when are you looking to sort of actually come to fruition and we can see the, the the actual documentary? I'm not sure exactly when the timing will be, but hopefully soon. I think, um, I mean, looking back at the Troubadour, I mean, the, the reputation is just, well, it's iconic, isn't it, to be honest with you? Absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you saw, but during the Grammys on Sunday night, they selected three venues um, to present awards and the Troubadour was one of the three venues that were highlighted in the uh, the show. So that's a really nice thing when you see that you get that kind of worldwide recognition that that nightclub has contributed so much to the music industry generally. Well, I don't think there's any one artist not performed there. Is that correct? They, they all have, haven't they? All the big acts? Well, I mean, not everybody, but we've had so many big uh, artists that have performed there over the years. And then you've got the people that whose careers have started because of playing at the Troubadour, like Elton John, like Billy Joel, um, you know, in the early days, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, you know, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, the number of people that have come through that room and have been discovered there is phenomenal. I mean, even something as, you know, on the comedy side, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, there were um, a lot of comedians that went through the club. I mean, we had in the early days, Lenny Bruce performed there. You know, in the later years, Steve Martin was a staple on stage. Mothers, brothers. So you know, it's 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 been a artistic nest for many many uh, genres of music over the years. And you know, thank God the COVID relief bill provided additional funding for independent music venues. And so it will help for, you know, smaller venues like the Troubadour to keep the doors open. Yeah, and no, I think that's the same over here. I think it's so important to have that because it's the lifeblood of the industry, really. And and when you mentioned sort of Elton John, I think um, I watched Rocketman sort of a few months ago and, you know, where he started and was one of the first performances. And you go, it's just an iconic, really, iconic um, situation yep. to be in and you don't know it's going to be iconic until you actually do something until it's years later but like you say it's w one of those venues that you know needs to be going like some of the ones we have in London like the 100 Club in London is a really great iconic venue um, you know you, you want to see those venues thrive and you, you want to see the new bands come through and sort of you know do their thing to be honest yeah and it's challenging because you know I'll, I'll use the Troubadour it seats 500 people yeah so if you open the club and you're at 25% capacity, so let's say you have 150 to 200 people in the room, you're actually losing money initially by opening the doors. <laughs> and 
So you need that federal funding in order to be able to offset the losses to keep, you know, the club open. And eventually it'll, you know, get back to 100% capacity. But in the, you know, early situations, it'll be challenging for small independent venues. Yeah, it's not, it's definitely, definitely not easy. And um, certainly the way the world's been is, it's been, like you say, using the word challenging for many, many people. Um, but I still stick to my, to my point, I think, Live is going to come back really stronger, David. I think it's people are just going to be wanting, to, whether it's comedy, live music, whatever that might be. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. <laughs> um, this is an interesting point. What would be your two pieces of advice that you'd give to somebody who wanted to come into you know, the entertainment and start their career. And whether that's an attorney or producer. Well, one, I think you always have to follow your heart with integrity because I think that if you do things that ultimately bring, um, um, you know, important issues to the forefront, you're going to be recognized uh, in a much different way um, and, you know, never compromise your ideals, you know, be, be someone of integrity with, who's a straight shooter that, you know, doesn't lie to people or try and steal or take advantage and you'll have a lifetime career ahead of you. So people that end up, you know, taking the sleazy route that end up usually getting hit over the head. Um, so, you know. <laughs> Keep your integrity intact and be honest and forthright with people and you'll have a long career. Yeah, I think that's I think that's solid advice. I think that sort of stood me in good stead as well, Dave, because I think what you just touched on now, you know, don't lie and be upfront. I think if you always ask somebody a question, this is what I'm doing, can you help? At least you're going to get a, a proper answer. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, because if you lie and, you know, we've all come across them in, in just all sorts of walks of life, really, it, they don't last so it is and keeping your integrity because you've only got your name in, and and your integrity to go with it and if you lose that then it's a bit difficult yeah you know i i the analogy for me in the legal profession is there's two types of lawyers the deal makers and the deal breakers and i'd rather be a deal maker and figure out a compromise that gets people in business together and you know oftentimes if each one of the parties is a little disappointed that they didn't get as much as they want. That's probably a good deal. But to just come into a deal and, you know, squawk about how your client is bigger than he, you know, demands more money, needs a bigger piece of the back end, and then the deal falls apart. Then to me, you're not really doing uh, uh, the ultimate service for your client. At the end of the day, it's figuring out how to move the career forward rather than complaining about all the things that you're not getting. Yeah, and why, I mean, why is it we always hear or conversations where deals go wrong or they fall apart and or the agent never did this or the manager never did this and you think, like you just said, why can't people just get round the table and actually do what they say they're going to do? And probably 99% of the time I face that as well, David. You have a good project and you, you've spoken to the person or the people and then you never hear from them again. Or it's six weeks' time. They, oh yeah, no, we've moved on. 
no one ever tells you and you're like what do you like wasting people's time what what i just don't understand that yeah well what i've learned over the years is if somebody get doesn't get back to you that's usually a pass <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily the politically correct way to deal with it but it's oftentimes the way that it is even if you get a short email to say no thanks done at least you know where you stand you think okay that's fine um there's, there's nothing more frustrated than being ghosted <laughs> yeah, that's a good word isn't it <laughs> uh-huh. do you still because of the work that you've done do you still get the the, the people that think oh well, you can just walk me into paramount or disney and get me a multi-million pound deal does that still happen to you yeah but what, what i always tell people up front is i open the door but you have to close it <laughs> Yes. You know, and so the the you know the life lesson is, you know, I can you know get your project presented to the right people, whether it's a music project or a film or a TV project. But at the end of the day, if the project doesn't have merit, it doesn't matter who's presenting it. No, and that comes back to what you were saying earlier. If it hasn't got great music, great scripts, great actor doesn't stand up does it no and this is a big question david i'll be interested to get your thoughts on this if you could change anything about the industry what would it be what would be that one thing that really really frustrates you boy where do i start (laughs) (laughs) or two things Um, or two i don't know i don't mind (laughs) I, i think for most film and tv projects there is an enormous amount of great ideas out there the hardest part is getting the funding. And so, you know, if I could change anything, it would be, you know, the ability of producers um, to have access to the funding they need in order to express their creative ideas. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, I think. I think, um, I think that's probably the thing that I would change where it's so difficult where people say they have money and they don't or they, they say they mm-hmm. can get hold of money and they, they can't. And it just wastes yeah. so many, so many people time and effort and energy. I agree. Yeah. Um, it's a really difficult area. And I think um, maybe if that was sort of get a bit more closer, it, you know, like you say, more projects would get made and, you know, would, would be good for everybody. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, I think that that's a really good solid point, actually, because I think as well that the big companies do get a bit of a, you know, people have a go at them all the time. Oh well, it's X Y Z, or you know, Netflix are doing this, or and, but they think, well, hang on a minute, yeah, they're a big company, they're a big conglomerate, but if you don't approach them in, in the right way, and if you haven't got the right product like you've just highlighted, then they're going to say no. <laughs> Yeah. So it does have to stand up on 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 its own merit, and I think um, yeah. what's been the project that you've been involved with and it hasn't flown? Has there been anything like that that you've gone, oh, that really should have got away? And was it down to money or just just didn't work? Well, I mean, I've worked on some film projects over the years that I thought were great pieces of uh, you know artistic integrity, and sometimes you end up. Um, not uh, having success because you don't have the marketing dollars necessary after the project is sold. And that's kind of sad when that happens because sometimes you can have a great piece of product, but if you don't have the funding 
to really um, market it in the right way, then it doesn't matter how good the film is. No, no, that's right. And I think that seems to be quite an interesting area as well. I wouldn't say a grey area, but a really interesting area, David, where, where film and you've got the P&A spend where... It, could it be where a, a big major studio actually funds the movie and they put their own P&A in, in spend as well and it, it can sort of get all quite diluted with what actually happens on, on the back end? Or is it just sometimes they haven't got the money to do it? Yeah, it's a, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. But at the end of the day, you have to have the financial wherewithal to market the film. And I know in the years where I worked with uh, Harvey Weinstein, that was one of the things that Harvey was really good at. He always had, um, you know, the ability to come up with a big marketing plan for his films. And I think that's one of the reasons why his films were really successful. Yeah, obviously did a huge amount of movies. And I think... um... Do you think it's good for the independent sector now? Do you think sort of even with music and film, do you think it's a good time to be to be an indie that you can get your movie made and you can still put out your great album to, for people to find it? And Or do you still think it's going to come down to, you know, people being able to find you because indies haven't got the money to, to sort of spend? Well, that goes back to the, you know, increased importance for um, the streaming services because I think they've opened up the doors for a lot of different types of programming that probably wouldn't have been um, made or exploited um, previously because, you know, there's an enormous amount of content. Think about the difference in the model. You know, in the old studio model, it was all about opening weekend and your numbers had to really be significant opening weekend. Otherwise, it was perceived to be a flop. And with the streaming services, it's about pulling eyeballs onto the platform. And they don't highlight the importance of an opening week or weekend as much as for Netflix and Amazon. It's, you know, how many times can we get the um, viewer to come back? And that's why for a lot of um, projects, the... um, um, the television series rather than, you know, a 90 to 120 minute motion picture is oftentimes more appealing to the streaming services because it's a way to get people to continue to come back to their platform. I I completely agree with that because it sort of hooked me in. Um, Different series that myself and and Becky have been watching, that sometimes Becky would phone me up and say, oh, I've been watching this really great series. I think we've both been sort of watching Shooter at the moment. Um, And with, I think, with Ryan Philippi. um, And it's really good because touching on the point you've just said is that they hook you into the first sort of episode and you think, oh, that's quite good. And the amount of people that I talk to now where they will binge watch a season or three seasons of, of a TV show in a weekend... And they'll watch yeah. it, and they'll watch it again as well. I mean, I've watched yeah. Viking. I think Vikings is one of the best ones that I've watched because I think the cinematography in Vikings. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it it's really, really good. The soundtrack's really good. And it's, it's MGM that actually um, I, I think produced and distributed it. Um, it's really great. 
and and there's yeah. there's one with Kerry Washington I think called Scandal is really good. Um, uh, Shameless US I've watched was absolutely hilarious. Um, right. You know, so I, I I do think that sort of com- not convincing myself, but I do think it is on the right track, and I think the studios. I've got to change their model. I think maybe the, the the people in the in the big ivory towers that you know make the decisions probably right. should make the decision of putting more stuff on to because I'd pay for you know if it was an extra five dollars a month to get right you know a theatrical release like Superman Five for example I'd pay right. I'd pay and watch it definitely right right and I think millions of other people will watch it as well to be honest yeah yeah that's no, true so. There you go. That's my rant over with. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, with all of your all of your work and what you've done all over the you know the years, do you get any spare time? And if you do, <laughs> what sort of hobbies do you have outside of film and music, or do you not? Well, I work out every day, and I'm glad that I've been able to do that because um, it's really helped psychologically to deal with the pandemic. So that's been a good thing. I do pick up my guitar and play quite often, and I use uh, my um, um, uh, film and TV uh, to also kind of uh, escape from the challenges and realities of today. But... um, you know, I like going for walks. I like uh, seeing friends. And now that restaurants have opened up a little bit um, in Los Angeles, hopefully things will get a little better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say about workout? What, do you go to the gym or do you go running, Dave? What do you what do you sort of do? Well, I actually have, uh, I, I do a little workout in my house every day and it's really kept me focused. It's been great. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I've been doing that for quite a few years as well sort of early in the morning and um i think sort of goes back to i played a lot of sport when i was younger uh, professional as well and it sort of helped me and i've sort of gone back to do it in it yeah i think the pandemic sort of forced me to a point even though i was doing it b- before that for about a couple of years um it mm. does focus your energy a lot more and it does give you that bit more of a i suppose um zest really you sort of yeah. you spring in and you, and you can start your day a lot more positively um yeah yeah you know and think you know what's going on in the world is to try and sort of stay away from it and, and do the best you can so no that's good yeah. no, that's good yeah. Yeah. um and when you're out and about eating what's your sort of favorite food what do you like to eat oh god i eat everything i sushi i love italian food salads fish i'm not a picky eater at all no no, no, anything and everything. As long as you're not exactly. paying the, as long as someone else is paying the bill, that's all good, isn't it? <laughs> but usually, I end up paying the bill, so <laughs> that way I get to choose what I want to eat. <laughs> exactly, and you can enjoy it. Do you, do you cook at home yeah. or anything like that, or do you eat out mostly? Yeah, I'm not much of a cooker, but I do. When I come home, uh, uh, I'll oftentimes pick up food from a really nice restaurant. So I do have the benefit of eating well, yeah. even though I'm not necessarily doing the cooking myself. No, no. And I also think, would you ever get pulled back to work for sort of like Disney or Paramount? Has that ever been calling again or would you not go down that road anymore? Uh, you know, I never say never, you know. Every opportunity is different. So 
you know, I, I roll with the punches. My career has had so many left turns that I never try and predict what the next road is going to look like. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. I think have an open, yeah. um, have an open mind, I think, because you don't know what's around yeah. the corner, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. You don't know what's around the corner. And I mean, I could talk to you all week, David, and I, you know, it's just absolute pleasure for you to come on the show. And I'm re- really Thank sort you. of excited to have you on. And um, yeah, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, no, I, I just, it's just, um, it's just really nice to sort of speak with you again and, and you know, get your mm-hmm. experience because I think it's really, really great. Um, Thank you. And I mean, where can people connect with you? You know, if you've got this new band coming through or this new filmmaker, where's the best place they connect with you online? What can they do? Uh, you know, I'm on all the social media platforms and I have a website um, www.healthantlaw.com and people can message me through the website. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. So people can, that next new big act coming through of the new the, the, the new Mission Impossible 6 movie, you never know what's going to come around the corner. Um, you never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thank you so much for coming on today, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Uh, pleasure for me too. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the show. It was really great to have David as a guest on the Entertainment Engine this week. His knowledge and experience of the entertainment business is outstanding and it was a real pleasure to speak with him. And now it's back over to Bex for the question of the day. Let's get started with this week's question. How many Steven Spielberg films has Tom Hanks starred in? If you think you know the answer, then please get in touch with us. You can do this by sending in your answer via voice message right from your phone for free. And this could be done via www.anchor.fm forward slash entertainment engine. Or you can email us your answer to podcast at seamlessentertainment.co.uk for a chance to be featured on our show. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Entertainment Engine. And thanks for listening. Join us again next week for more great music industry discussions. Plus, we will have our question of the day and music and movie facts for our listeners. It would be great to have your feedback on the show, so you can always drop us a message at any time. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platforms so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening to the show. And remember to all stay safe. The Entertainment Engine.